Well, you see it, whether you're tuning in online or you're here in the house, we begin a new series today called Faith and Culture. Uh, we're, we're all learning to wear our mask, aren't we? I don't know if you're an early adapter or a middle adapter or a late adapter. I said at the 930 that I was a middle adapter, and good friend Brett Barnhill called me out after church as a late adapter. Uh, Brett leads Reclaim Project, one of our ministry partners. Unfortunately, we have to cut funding to him, to that ministry uh, this year. They're, they're dedicated, they're deserving, but just can't, can't allow for that kind of talk. But whether you're early, mid, or late adapter when it comes to wearing a mask, funny story, last week I was sitting on the front row as is my custom didn't know it and good friend Austin Brown apparently was hiding somewhere over here and I took my mask off right at the end of the song before the sermon to adjust my earpiece and Austin took a picture of me and he sent it to me I don't know who else he sent it to but he just he sent the text to me with a picture of me not wearing a mask around people wearing a mask in church and it said hypocrite so uh, Austin was like playing some sort of stealth paparazzi photographer. I don't know where he was hiding over here. But we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we've been uh, preaching in Scripture, of course. This summer we looked in the Psalms at Lament. And then we looked, uh, we, we looked at a series that we called Wish I Knew That Sooner in the letter of 1 Timothy. And then last week we had a standalone sermon. If you weren't here, weren't able to watch online or listen on SoundCloud, I would love for you to check that out. We talked about the door, the table, and the garden. And it's sort of, more than sort of, I hope it forms and shapes us this fall. Whether you, your door is the front door or one of these doors in our new commons area or the door for you is online, we want you to worship with us and learn what it means to wholeheartedly worship Christ, to learn what it means to move away from worship as one hour a week to more of a way of life. We talked about the table, living around the table with gladness and sincerity of heart, and then the garden that we would seek the peace and prosperity of our city, according to Jeremiah 29. So this morning, it's sort of a standalone, and most of the time, but we're always anchored in the Bible, most of the time it's one specific passage. This morning, a couple of things that will help you at the beginning of the message is we're not going to be in one verse. I'll be spitting fire and throwing a lot of passages out at you, but we won't be in one verse in particular, but a really good morning to take notes if you're note takers. Sometimes I look at a lot of you not taking notes during the sermon. I just think, you know, they're going to go back and watch it later and they'll take notes then. That's that's what I tell myself. So faith and culture. Here's what I want to start with as we talk about this. Here's where we're going. The virus in the church today. Next week, race and justice beyond the hashtags. Then the church and hypocrisy. I'm chomping at the bit to preach that one. And then bitter divides. We're going to look at the increasing disunity in our world and specifically uh, in the church, hoping that God brings some healing that we need in that regard. Hey, here's the reality. The reality is that for over five months, a tiny little virus that none of us understand fully, some of us understand more than others, but a tiny little virus has become the vehicle for disruption and upheaval and change around the globe. And of course, undergirding it all is death, but there's also disruption from social events and gatherings, sports events, large public concerts, music and arts festivals, all of those things have been disrupted. The way we shop and greet each other, the way we live, the way we socialize or not or gather or not, all of it, you know, we all know has been disrupted and we've had to experience things as we've never have before. Mental health, there's 
a whole new low, a whole new level of psychological suffering and emotional angst. Mental health professionals are overwhelmed and the resources are limited. We live in a, a, an ever-burgeoning digital world where we are screaming for more and more content, for faster and easier connections, where we it's so easy as a society to slip further and further into little filter bubbles and echo chambers. There is a great economic disparity that I don't think is being talked about enough. Now, these are new numbers that reflect a reality, and this is where we're going with no cure in sight. But never before, economists are telling us, has the gap between wealthy and poor been this wide, and never has it widened as fast as it has. And can I tell you, sports fans, that's not good. And with this widening gap, by the way, here's a bummer. Another reality that the church must address globally. But we in the fight, the global fight against poverty, year after year, decade after decade, we've made progress. Every year we've made progress in this generation except 2020. It's going backwards. And economically and socially and every way, they're looking at our world and saying countries like Japan, Germany, Canada can weather this storm better than countries like Ecuador and Kenya and Bangladesh. Companies like Amazon, Apple, and Google are watching their stocks soar while mom and pop operations are struggling for solvency. In this world, in this pandemic, it has changed it for everybody. Are you a leader does anybody here lead a team, an organization? Are you at the top? Are you the senior leader or close to the senior leader? There is a crisis of leadership happening today like I've never seen before. I was talking, I had an opportunity to sit down with kind of a, a VIP, kind of an important person, a, a, a big baller, if you will. By the way, Billy Graham told me years and years ago, he told me, Robert, I've told you a million times, don't exaggerate or name drop. But I had the opportunity to sit down with a university president. And this president, this leader, I can tell you he's dealing with students, he's dealing with faculty and staff and parents, and you can see the pain etched in his face. How could he be lonely? He's got all those people, but he's got the weight of leadership and decisions and he doesn't know what to do. It's one thing if you don't know what to do and you're just sitting at home eating onion dip out of the container wearing a Star Wars t-shirt in your parents' basement. But it's another thing to do when people are looking for you to say, here's where we're going to go, and here's how it's going to be done. Take a look at a quick clip from a football coach and look at the pain of leadership in his voice and his face. The mental health of everybody inside our organization, led, led by me, is at the forefront of my mind, because that's another topic we need to talk about, right, is the mental health and the well-being, not just COVID. But these young people are dealing with so many stressors in their life right now. So many. These are student athletes. And I know everybody wants to talk about becoming professionals and, and everything else, which that, that, that's a topic for another day, and I get it. But they're 18 to 22-year-old young men who are dealing with a, a national world pandemic that no one's ever dealt with. That's affecting them in their sport and in some of the things some of them only know. It's affecting their academics. It's affecting their sick mom or dad with cancer at home. It's affecting their relationship with them of how much they can be around them, right? It's not just about how many kids got tested positive. That's what everybody keeps talking about. Uh, we only had one or two kids test positive. That's good. 
That's good. That means guys are doing what they're supposed to do. But we were thinking bigger than that. We're thinking about their family members and their grandfathers and their grandmothers. In some cases, a lot of their grandma and grandpas raised them. We're thinking about everyone in this world, in this nation, and the people close to our kids because we don't create a bubble. It, it, you do everything you can to create a synthetic bubble, but they're kids. You're going to tell these parents they can't see their kid? Right? So we've got to create the safest environment possible. Make sure we listen to our safety professionals. And as we continue to move forward, all these talks, we need to communicate and be open and know that change is inevitable, but the mental health of these kids is incredibly important. And that is, and our staff, I mean, our staff too, they're dealing with a lot as well. We all are, but that's why it's, it's really a world pandemic is because we're, it's, we're all affected by it. It doesn't care who you are. And then we're dealing with the social injustice issue on top of that, right? And so when you think of what's going on in 2020, the young people, 18 to 22, who are not grown men with families yet, right? Who are not professionals yet. They're student athletes. Their safety, well-being, medical health, mental health, emotional health, physical health has to be at the forefront of every decision we make. You think that guy feels the weight? You think he cares about those kids? Man. You know, I know my people, my tribe, I have a vocation. I'm a pastor. It's more than that to me. It's so more than that to me. It's a calling. And my tribe is not doing that well. Don't call 911 on me yet. I'm okay. But I cried when I read this on the Twitter feed this week, and three of you subsequently sent me this quote. A guy I admire, by the way, Nate Pyle, says, in the next two years, there will be a large exodus of pastors from the pastorate. Every pastor I talk with is exhausted to a degree, frustrated. Theological and ideological differences between pastor and parishioner is increasing. It's not sustainable. Leadership. There's a crisis on many levels and many fronts. We're going to specifically address what this is pointing to in the last week of this four-week series on faith and culture. But today, the virus and the church, a good day, did I say this? A good day to take notes. I want to encourage us, uh, first note to take, if you would, is Jeremiah 45, 4. We're not going to open it. We're not going to read it. But trust me, it's in there. Jeremiah 45, 4. We're not going to give you a lot of historical, cultural context here. But God himself says, listen, he says this, I will overthrow what I built and uproot what I have planted. Really? God? God. Jeremiah 45, 4, I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted. I can't help but think, as we talk about the virus in the church and five shifts, I can't help but think that you need to overthrow something, that you need to overroot something, uproot something. And yes, it's something that you've built or something that you've planted, something that you have at least metaphorically thrown into the ground and saying, I want this to grow. Here's my heart. Here's my creative energies. Here it is. And I throw it into the ground and I hope something grows out of this. This is my hope. But what might need to be overthrown or uprooted in your life? Jeremiah 45, 4. Before we talk about the five shifts, we're about to get into them. But Jeremiah 45, 4. God, I will overthrow what I built and uproot what I have planted. I can't help but think. I can't help but think that we need to shatter some idols that we have in our own lives. I said this to the 930 service and again to everyone online, if you have something in your life, a change that's being brought about by this pandemic that's been 
it's been catalytic to have you think about a change. I would love to hear from you as I pastor people here. Robert.green at founderchurch.com. First shift. Somebody told me last night, Robert, be careful saying shifts in church over and over again. But there'll be five shifts. And the first one is this, a move from feeling threatened to seeing opportunity. A shift from feeling threatened to seeing opportunity. Write down Matthew 16, 18 to undergird this. I've been reading as I look at these five shifts, it it comes from my heart as I look at the world that we're living in. And as I'm reading through Matthew, each evening I'm reading through the gospel of Matthew. And you'll see most of these shifts of flow from some of the gospel teaching there, the gospel of Jesus according to Matthew. But write down Matthew 16, 18. A lot of you are going to know this. Jesus made a claim. He made a claim over 2,000 years ago. And let me tell you, he has backed it up. And we have been a part of that claim. Many of you, if you're a person of faith, if you put a stake in the ground and said that you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus said this, I will build my church. Y'all want to finish it with me? I will build my church and the gates of hell The gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is greater than Gloria Gaynor. I will survive. The church will survive. Now, as an incidental footnote, there's no guarantee that Fondren Church will survive. Or if you're visiting today and you have another church home, there's no guarantee that your home church will survive. But there is a guarantee. You can bet it on the only person in human history who prognosticated his death and said, I will rise again, and he pulled it off. That person guaranteed that the gates of hell will not prevail. Why am I saying Matthew 16, 18 with this shift? Because a lot of us feel threatened. Because we're looking at what's happening and we're feeling threatened. Let me tell you, panoramic, quick take on church history for you. The church following Jesus has survived plagues and pandemics, fires and floods, economic and natural disasters, simmering hostilities, and systematic persecution. Time and time again, and the church has and always will prevail. Can we rest in that today? Can we rest in that? Can can, can we rest in the fact that maybe we can make a shift from feeling threatened because there are threats? Look, there are threats. Anybody saying they're not threats today? I'm not saying it. Don't, Don't say that I'm saying it. But I know that we live with this ever-present lament of feeling threatened by everything. But what if we shifted from feeling threatened to seeing opportunity? Quick note, global missions experts and sociologists estimate that there are over 260 million Christians suffering restrictions on their worship, intimidation, and persecution. For two consecutive summers, when I was a young man, uh, 1989 and 90, straight out of college, I lived in a country uh, that used to be called Yugoslavia. The city was Belgrade. The winds of change were sweeping through this Marxist atheistic regime, and we were a part of a growing, burgeoning church that was underground. We were stealth and covert We were clandestine because of the culture, because of the restrictions, because of the intimidation, because of the persecution. The church that Jesus is building will survive. By chance, if there's any 
pastors watching this message today or any young ministers in the room or any one that would inspire to serve in the ministry, I take great comfort. I've been reading Matthew every night and I take great comfort in Matthew 16 when Jesus said, I will build my church that he's the one building. He's the one building and a weight can go off my shoulders. A weight can go off my shoulders and I can come home to my wife and kids and be feather light. I can leave some worries in my office. I can leave even pressing problems that you bring to the counseling room. I can trust Jesus with that. And I can know he's the one who's building his church. And I can follow him into peace. And I can move more and more away from anxiety and worry. Jesus knew what he was doing in Matthew 6. I've been reading Matthew every evening. Jesus knew what he was doing in Matthew 6 when he told you, Don't, do not worry. He knew that you would think that your life consists of the things around you and that you would want more and more stuff and that you would worry. Jesus is the one who's building his church. Show you a photo that everybody has seen. No way you haven't seen Beirut, Lebanon. No way you didn't see the most powerful explosion visually that I've ever seen in my life. Here's what I learned this week. There are 16, didn't make the news, but there are 16 different, credible, compassionate, Jesus-following organizations that are lending aid and relief to Beirut, Lebanon. When the church feels threatened, we run. But what if we saw opportunities? What if when there's devastation and tragedy, we didn't run from it in fear, but we moved toward it and we saw it as an opportunity? The second shift is this, that we would move from measuring attendance to measuring impact. Now, some of this I'm speaking out of pride preservation. We did a church survey. Don't ever do a church survey. And you guys spoke to us and said over 60% said we're not ready for in-person worship right now. But we thought it best to, to stay as one church but give some of us the opportunity, people like me, who really think that God's people need to gather and that we can do so safely, to give people like me the sacred blessing and opportunity to be among his people. Now look, I don't like this. Some of you do look better in a mask, but I don't like the restrictions that we have. The hardest thing for me is blame Nick Crawford. It's his fault. When Nick Crawford says, you're dismissed this way and you're dismissed this way, I don't want you to be dismissed this way or that way. I want you to come give me a big hug. Some of you, I'll take a holy kiss. I mean, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like these restrictions. But listen, this is an opportunity. One of my friends around a table a month ago said, I think God is going to purify his church. And you know what I said out loud? I said, ouch, ouch. Here's not just a shift, shift to. To me, it's a purification that we would move from measuring attendance to measuring, to measuring impact. Matthew 13, 31 to 32. Write that down because today is a good day to take notes. I'm going to actually read this one from my Bible. Jesus is telling parables. He's telling a string of parables. And in Matthew 13, 31 and 32, I've been reading Matthew every evening. I loved when I read this. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. 
Verse 33, he told him another parable. You know what he told him another parable about? He told him another parable about what the kingdom is like. You know in this string of parables, Jesus talked about the kingdom? Because we need to hear about the kingdom. We need to live for the kingdom. Matthew 6, 33, I've been reading Matthew every evening. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added into you and we cripple our lives. We suck the joy out of us because we're seeking all these other things. So Jesus, if he's going to tell us to seek the kingdom, he better, ought to t- he better ought to tell us what the kingdom's about. Good news, he does. But when he tells us what the kingdom's about, he never says it's large and flat. He's telling these parables, Matthew 13, there's a few of them in there. He never says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is. Now, if he was an American... He'd say something that was large and flashy and headline-grabbing. But guess what? He never says the kingdom of heaven is like anything that's large or flashy or headline-grabbing. He says it's something small. Zechariah 4.10. Note-takers, write that down. Good luck spelling it. You're probably going to get it wrong. Zechariah 4.10. Despise not small beginnings. Susan and I... We want to cry when we hear that as church planters. Because nine years ago, there was nobody and no money and nothing and just an idea, and we wondered if we were crazy. And now after COVID, we're back to wondering (laughs) if we're crazy. Yeah. Do not despise small beginnings. Y'all know Van Harden. He's our missions pastor. He helps us love our neighbors and the nations. And here's his son. Um, I cheated the 930 out of this, but here's his son, Asher, he was on the radio this morning at 7 being interviewed by the leader of Mission Mississippi. How cool is that? Small beginnings, little people. Every parent in the room knows, man, what's your kid like when they're little and what can they become? What is the future? Look at Asher. He enjoys, he's a baseball-loving fourth grader. He's always up for an adventure, loves deeply, devours books. If he's not reading Harry Potter or the Hardy Boys, you can find him roaming the neighborhood on his bike, rollerblades, or skateboard with neighbors. Asher has two younger brothers and a dog named Chance. Let me tell you, Asher is parented well. Asher represents, this morning at, on 103.9, I want to listen to it later. I was nervous about the sermon and didn't listen. But here's a little guy, here's a small beginning. And that represents the kingdom. Asher represents the kingdom. It's small now, but what could happen after what God does? Let's move from, let's make a shift. Let's make a healthy shift. Let me share with you the third shift that we want to make. Be careful saying that word over and over in church. Third shift, from encouraging the saints to attend the service to equipping the saints for the work of service. When it comes to the work of service, read Matthew 25. There's some eschatology in there. There's some things that are hard to understand. Email us if you want some insight. We'll try. Encourage that. Listen, I'm not talking. I'd be the last person in the room saying, don't go to church. But I'm asking us to elevate, to elevate so that we would move beyond just attending the service to being equipped. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 tells us specific instructions. It says that pastors, in America, we've gotten this wrong. It says pastors, pastor, preachers preach, teachers teach, apostles, apostle, evangelist, evangelize. We do those things so that you would be, I plagiarized, so that you would be equipped 
for the works of service. Nick and the staff team tell me that when we're fully functioning around here, when we're not in a global pandemic, that it takes about 100 people to pull off two services. Hospitality, production, uh, children's ministries. I would really get in trouble if I didn't say that, sleeping on the couch tonight. Student ministry. There's about, it takes about 100 people to pull off a Sunday morning. This week I learned that a, young, that a um, really cool guy told our new student pastor, Chris Mixon, he said, look, here's what I want to do. When you're ready for me in student ministry, because Chris has just started, when you're ready for me, I want to I take a group of eighth grade boys and I want to mentor them and I want to walk with them for four years through college. Like that gets me. It gets me because we just said goodbye to our daughter who's about to start college. I'm okay. I want to walk with these guys for four years. And, isn't that cool? I guess it's just me. But anyway, think about, think about the church, how we, and man, it's my fault. I'll own my part. I want to do better. Pray for me. But we're not engaging the life of our people. We're not firing up the passions of our people. And maybe, maybe because it takes more than 100. And maybe, maybe, maybe we grow bored. And maybe, maybe, maybe we need bigger dreams because D.L. Moody preached it one time. He said, small dreams do not inflame the hearts of men and women. So it's a good, ta- good day to take notes. Write down Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65. Write down Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. And then look at potential works of service. For you and for me, for Fondren Church, for kingdom work, for our future. Here are seven that I pulled out. See if you can find Waldo as I did in Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. Seven characteristics of works of service change that we could bring about in the community. Seven things. I'll see if I can remember them. People's happiness and celebration. The health of children and elderly. Housing for everybody, food for everyone, family support systems, meaningful work, and an absence of violence. Happiness and celebration, health for children and elderly, homes, houses for everyone, food for everyone, meaningful work, family support systems, and an absence of violence. God is saying that's the vision for kingdom love and impact. And all that's wrong will be made right in a new heaven and a new earth. But you and I have an opportunity, I would say a God-given mandate to move toward works of service. Can I get an amen and I'll go to shift number four. All right, from avoid, shift four, from avoiding the hard parts to making the peace. So I hope for a moment that this will bring some needed conviction, whether you're here today or you're at home. Matthew 5, 9, let me drop this. I've been reading Matthew every evening. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Let's say it together, okay? We're 
a little slim today, but let's all say it together. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. One more time, louder. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I know you heard us at home. Here's Jesus, the masterful teacher, the greatest teacher ever. When he says children of God, some of your versions render sons of God. Specifically, the phrase sons of God in Jewish culture meant identity with God. Jesus would do that. He would understand Jewish culture. He was Jewish. He wasn't white. That's for next week, maybe. But Jesus preached, and he used phrases like this, and he knew what he was doing. Remember when he told religious people in Matthew 23? I've been reading Matthew every night. And he said, you brood of vipers. Why did he call them a brood of vipers? Because they were lying, and they were hypocritical. They were hurting people, and they were putting a religious weight on people that they couldn't stand. They were misrepresenting God. He called them a brood of vipers. He didn't just randomly pull the phrase out. Brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, was a term used in Jewish culture for religious people who were hypocritical and who lied. And Jesus intentionally said, you are sons of God. If you make peace, if you make peace, you will be known as sons of God. Colossians 1.20, I think Paul got the idea. This is the call of the church in the world. You can tell God's serious about it. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by what? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Good day to take notes. Draw a little hill on one side. On the left side of your paper, draw a hill. Y'all do this at home. Just draw a little hill. And we're going to call it the hill of avoidance. Write that at the top, the hill of avoidance. And then over to the right side of the page, I'm a left-hander and I'm standing opposite you, I gotta be careful. On the right side of the page, write, draw a, a mountain. It's bigger than the hill. And this is the mountain, let's call it the mount of conflict. All right, so you've got what? The hill of avoidance over here. And then over here, you've got the mount of conflict. So on the hill of avoidance, write some words inside. Like you, you did this, right? So write some words inside there, right? Right. Write silence, write pretend, write dodge, write appeasement. Thought I'd throw one big word in there. So write those four words into the hill of avoidance. Silence, pretending, dodging, appeasing, or appeasement. And that's what we do when we're on the hill of avoid it stay with me because on the hill of avoidance listen you're not having the difficult conversations so go over here to the mount of conflict which sounds like god's not about that guess what god's about that matthew 18 read matthew 18 i've been reading matthew every evening and in matthew 18 jesus said if you're coming to church coming to the temple coming to offer sacrifice and you know you have sinned against your brother go like they didn't drive. Some of you came and finely tuned, superbly engineered luxury automobiles with air condition. That none of them had that. They walked on dusty roads, arduous terrain. Jesus saying, you come with that and you know something's wrong here with someone, go and get on the mount of conflict. Get off the hill of avoidance and get on the mount of conflict. And right on the mount of conflict, you note takers. Right, pain. Right, struggle. Right, confrontation. Right, compromise. And then right, forgiveness. 
A pastor friend I know and admire says he has something called critical conversations and everybody needs to have critical conversations. Some of you know the reason you're lonely, you know the reason that you're not reconciled is because you're not willing to have a critical conversation. A critical conversation he defines as a conversation where opinions vary, emotions run high, and the outcome is uncertain. Thank God you don't have to have one of those every day. But you need to have them. You need to have, you won't be a, you won't be married. You won't be a parent. You won't lead in a church. You, you, listen, over here, what is this? The hill of avoidance? You're not a peacemaker. You're a peace faker. But over here, if you're willing to follow Jesus into the pain and struggle and difficulty and confrontation, into the compromise and ultimately to the forgiveness and possibly reconciliation, then you are a peacemaker. And that's what our world needs today, desperately. Are you adding to the anger? Are you making peace? Final shift is number five. Am I right? Yep. Let's move. Let's shift from keeping people to forming people. So here's a reason pastors aren't doing well right now. Because of the divide, because of the pandemic, because of the disunity, because of the theological and ideological differences because of everything being thrown at us at once. But I don't know that we understand what our job is. So my job is not to get you here and keep you happy. Now, y'all don't all leave at once. But that's not my job. My job is more informing people and pointing you to what forms you. So as we close, what forms you? Lauren and the team, y'all go ahead and come up and I'll be kind of fast with this one. But let me ask you before we close in song today, what forms you? Do you know that research reveals that people who are formed into the image of Jesus, who have a meaningful spiritual life, do you know what forms them? At the crux of it is, you ready? You're not ready. Weakness and struggle. Weakness and struggle. Now, I don't have a Matthew, but I have a Genesis 32. Write that down. Genesis 32, Jacob and God. Jacob, the name, before he wrestled with God, Jacob, the name, meant striver and deceiver. God showed weakness. He touched Jacob's dislocated hip, but he did it in a way that displayed weakness, not his strength. He withheld And God wins Jacob to himself through weakness. And Jacob, some of you know this, walked away with a limp. He was weak. And he won through losing. Jacob, his name is Israel, one who wrestles with God. And Jacob led with a limp. And you know, at my age, I don't want to follow any leader anywhere if they don't lead with a limp. If they don't realize that they are formed in the image of Jesus to be peacemakers, to be someone who could be called sons of God, children of God, if they don't lead through weakness and struggle. And that's how you will be formed. And so it's a good day to take notes. Let's do this fast. Write down five things that have to do with weakness and struggle. Here are the five. Being overwhelmed change trials failure 
and disciplines that make you weak. Listen, we need to be a people formed. We need to be a people formed. And you won't be formed unless you follow in the ways of Jesus. And Jesus prayed. And Jesus fasted. And Jesus gave of himself. And Jesus went alone to be with the Father, even when the crowds were pressing in on him. Jesus took a day of rest. Some of y'all don't take a day of rest. You never do. And you're proud of how productive you are. When you take a Sabbath rest, I know and I struggle. But when I take a Sabbath rest, I am embracing weakness by saying, I will not accomplish anything today so that I can have a soul and that's a practice that forms me and when I fast I don't I don't eat food and it reminds me of how weak I am and how I need him and when I give I'm reminded that his way his economy and his math is better than my own and I embrace weakness and struggle and it's through that that forms me what who's overwhelmed today who's experiencing some change we just sent a quarantine college senior back to school and a graduating high school freshman to college for the first time a couple of times over the last year or two I've picked up potatoes for dinner and I would get five potatoes and the other day I thought I only need three potatoes now change can be difficult to let go of what you love but that's where we are formed and that's where we grow and some of you are changing because you have to you didn't vote on the change nobody asked you if you wanted the change it was just imposed on you but listen that's an opportunity for you to be shaped and formed, to be more like Jesus. And that's what the world needs. I gotta shut up. God bless your people. May we be formed to you in Jesus. Amen.